been in the book of Isaiah, and uh, today we're going to look at um, just a, a verse, half of a verse, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. Um, Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and uh, in the first part of chapter 1, Isaiah exposed the sins of the sinful nation of, of Judah and her capital city, and he issued a call to repentance. And he gave the assurance that uh, uh, when wicked men turn from their evil ways and turn to the Lord, God stands ready and willing to forgive. But those who refuse to repent, um, those who harden their hearts against the word of God, uh, those who harden their hearts against the conviction of sin, the call to repentance, God will judge. Those who refuse repentance will face certain judgment from the Lord. Uh, those who refuse to repent and continue in their wicked ways, the Lord will punish. And uh, Judah will not repent. They will continue in their rebellion. And God is preparing to turn his hand against his own people, his chosen nation, his unfaithful bride. And uh, we will see the announcement of the coming judgment in, uh, in the, at the end of verse 21. There's kind of a pivotal verse that, uh, that Isaiah, before he announces the coming judgment of the Lord, he simply laments the rebellion of the people. Um, and uh, we're going to spend some time on this because... In the beginning of Isaiah, he's going to introduce some concepts that will be developed and unpacked through the book. And so uh, tonight we're going to talk about the faithful city becoming a harlot. And next week we will look at uh, the, the lack of justice. Um, and so, so I want to develop those themes because they're going to recur as we go through the book of Isaiah. We'll run across them several times, so we're going to spend quite a bit of time just looking at, at that. So Isaiah 121a says how the faithful city has become a harlot. All right, so what city is he referring to as the formerly faithful city? Jerusalem. And, uh, and Jerusalem is probably one of the most fought over cities in all of the world. And it's interesting because Jerusalem is not prime real estate. It's on the edge of a desert. The land is not well suited for agriculture. There aren't any raw materials of any value. The terrain is rugged. There's not much water. Uh, the city is dependent on one small spring. The city's not on any major crossroads that would make it an important city of trade. Uh, it's hard to get to. The road from the Jordan River to Jerusalem, the road from Jericho just on the banks of the Jordan River up to Jerusalem is a notoriously difficult road. Uh, it's rugged and steep, and it's actually the perfect hideout for thieves and bandits. And uh, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem will be the setting of a parable that Jesus tells in his life. It, it, what, what parable occurs what story does Jesus tell that occurs on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem? Parable of the Good Samaritan. And what happened to the man who was traveling the road from Jericho to Jerusalem? 
He fell among thieves. He was beaten. He was robbed. And he was left to die. This is a, a, a difficult road, a, a hideout, a, a, a rugged, steep terrain, a perfect hideout for thieves and bandits and robbers. And so Jerusalem seems to have nothing to offer. All of the things that men would fight war over, water, agriculture, access to trade routes or access to the sea, Jerusalem has none of those things. And yet, it is one of the most fought over cities in human history. And uh, when Joshua led the nation of Israel into the promised land, what peoples occupied Jerusalem? Anybody know? Not the, the Gibeonites? Is that, is that not, not them? No, the Jebusites. The Jebusites occupied Jerusalem uh, when they entered the Promised Land. And what tribe was the land of Jerusalem assigned to? Benjamin. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. So the, the city of Jerusalem, when initially the land was divided, um, it was a, a, a assigned to Benjamin. Now Benjamin would uh, stay a part of Judah or, or align with Judah when the kingdom divided, but it was a, assigned to Benjamin. And uh, Benjamin was the, uh, the smallest, the most insignificant tribe uh, the tribe of Benjamin was assigned the territory that Jerusalem was in, the Jebusites. And the tribe of Benjamin did not liberate Jerusalem from the Jebusites. When they conquered the land, Benjamin did not take Jerusalem. They did not drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. And so it was a Jebusite enclave in the tribe of Benjamin for many years. When did Jerusalem, under, under whose rule did Jerusalem come into the, be conquered by Israel and become part of the nation of Israel? David. So when David was king, David uh, uh, became king, replacing a king from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, the first king, was from the tribe of Benjamin, and then when Saul dies, God had anointed David as king, but when David first became king at the death of Saul, there was much division among the tribes. In fact, only Judah followed David. David was anointed king only over Judah at the, uh, uh, upon the death of Saul, and, uh, and, um, and Israel... The other 11 tribes made Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, king over Israel. And so Saul dies, Jonathan is also killed, and so Ishbosheth becomes the king of 11 of the tribes, but Judah recognizes the one that Samuel had anointed the next king of Israel to be their king. So David's only king over Judah, Ishbosheth reigns over the other 11 tribes. And there was actually a great civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. There was a long civil war. Uh, we read about that in 2 Samuel 3, 1. 
And during that long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David grew stronger and stronger and was winning victories while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And so uh, David, as, the, how, as he was beginning to win this civil war and he was beginning to emerge as the king, he needed a neutral place to put his, to put his kingdom. He, uh, he wanted a, a, a city that was located near the boundary between the northern tribes and the southern tribes in order to establish a capital city and he conquered Jerusalem and established his monarchy there. So it was during the reign of David that Jerusalem was uh, conquered. The Jebusites were defeated, and David now establishes his capital in the city of Jerusalem. Um, And the, the city increased in importance under the reign of Solomon. Solomon was a builder, and he filled the city with administrative buildings and palaces, and then uh, he also built the temple in the city. And so Jerusalem was not only the seat of government, but it also became the seat of worship for all of the 12 tribes as the temple was there. And Jerusalem prospered as the administrative center, the political center, and the religious center of the nation. Um, and so it's so, so ironic that a city with nothing to offer, a terrible location, no natural resources, not much water, not the highest piece of terrain, easily defended terrain around, but that little city with little to offer became a vitally important political and religious center because it's the city where God determined to set his name. God set Jerusalem apart to himself, and God made it holy. So during the reign of Solomon, the city has become very important. Well, what happens when Solomon dies? Okay, the kingdom is now split. Benjamin and Judah, ironic. Uh, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, David from Judah. They had been at war together, but now Benjamin and Judah unite they stay loyal to david to the son of david to uh, rehoboam the son of solomon and the other 10 tribes rebel against rehoboam the son of solomon and the kingdom is divided and the 10 northern tribes abandon jerusalem don't go there anymore and make what city their capital city capital city of the northern kingdom samaria all right, so they establish their kingdom in Samaria and they make uh, alternate places of worship at Bethel and Dan. And so the ten tribes, nothing to do with Jerusalem. Samaria is our political city, city center and our worship centers are at Bethel and Dan. And so, uh, so Jerusalem now becomes the seat of government and the place of worship only for the tribes of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And Isaiah preaches during the time of the divided kingdom. And the book of Isaiah is described in chapter 1, verse 1, as the vision the son of Amos saw, uh, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of several of those kings of Judah that we saw a few, few weeks ago. So the faithful city, the city of Jerusalem, how the faithful city, what has the faithful city become? 
uh, harlot, a prostitute. Um, and, uh, and so the faithful city had become a prostitute. One who accepts money in exchange for sex. And so Isaiah uses this metaphor to describe the unfaithfulness of the city. Um, in the first part of the chapter, Isaiah exposed the sins of the sinful nation and her wicked capital city. He issued a call to repentance, uh, and he, he, he made it clear that when sinful people repent from their sins, they find God willing and able to forgive, but those who refuse to repent uh, face his judgment. And so Isaiah declares the faithful city has become a harlot. Israel has failed to live as a faithful wife with the Lord. Every, um, and, and everything else that we'll talk about, the lack of justice, and we'll talk about the oppression, everything else, all the other sins flow from this lack of faithfulness, this uh, rebellion against God and rebellion against the covenant relationship that uh, uh, is also a metaphor uh, the, the covenant of marriage, a metaphor for the relationship between God and his people. And that's why the image of the harlot represents that covenant unfaithfulness. Uh, Israel had been chosen by God. Israel had been loved by God. Israel had been taken by God as his treasured possession. Israel, uh, God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. But Israel had been unfaithful to him. And harlotry becomes a metaphor for unfaithfulness to God. Uh, spiritual adultery, idolatry. And, uh, and idolatry was a big part of Israel's adultery. The children of Israel tried to mix the worship of the Lord with the worship of other gods. Uh, the gods of the land that were there before them and the gods of their neighbors. And so it's not so much that Israel abandoned God. Israel never forsook the worship of God. The worship at the temple, or Judah and Jerusalem, the worship at the temple was, was very important. And they would go to the temple and they would make the sacrifices. They would bring the offerings. They would do all of the rituals and the ceremonies that God commanded in the law. They would go to the temple. They would have the morning prayers at 9 o'clock, the evening prayers at 3 o'clock. They would observe the feast and festivals and the fast days, and they even added days of fasting. And so Israel or Judah and Jerusalem never stopped worshiping God. They never stopped worshiping the true and living God. Their problem was they added the worship of other gods to the worship of God. So they tried to synchronize the worship of the true and living God with the worship of these other pagan gods and so so uh, that's kind of why Isaiah uses the image of a of a harlot the uh, the wife would go out during the day and uh, um, be unfaithful but then come home at night and want to be received and welcome and so it wasn't a abandonment it wasn't a divorce it was active adultery and so that's why this image is is used um, it's not that they abandoned God, but they sought to combine the worship of the true and living God with the other local gods. And you know, the, uh, uh, the generation that entered the land under Joshua saw 
Yahweh, God, the true and living God, as a God of war. Um, these, this generation, the first generation to enter the land, had come to age in the wilderness. Uh, they moved from place to place as God led and as God provided for their needs with manna from heaven and water from the rock and uh, uh, God miraculously provided for their needs and as they came out of Egypt God defeated their enemies draw, drowning the army of Pharaoh in the sea and then he defeated the army that came out against them uh, right after they land you know as uh, Moses stood on the on the uh, the mountain with the rod in his hand and his hands in the air Israel prevailed over their enemies and as, as Moses got tired and his arms began to drop, what happened? They started to lose. And so Aaron and her came up, or Joshua and, and uh, Aaron came and, and held his arms up so that uh, uh, Israel would prevail. And, and so he gave them victory over their enemies as they were coming out of the land of Egypt. And then as they were coming into the promised land, going through Moab and uh, these, other, these other nations, God gave them victory. He defeated their enemies at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, at the end of the wilderness wanderings, and then he brought them into the promised land and drove out the occupants of the land before them, um, most of the occupants of the land, but some, the Jebusites, the Gibeonites, and some others, uh, uh, they did not conquer, but God drove the nations out of the land that they were coming to occupy the land that he was giving to them, the land that was flowing with milk and honey. And then they did something they'd never done before. You know, they'd been wandering for 40 years, God feeding them with manna, and they had herds and livestock, and uh, they were wandering in the wilderness, nomads, Bedouins. But then what happened when they came into the land? What were they going to do for a living? going to farm so no longer are they wanderers and warriors they're going to settle into this land and they're going to farm they're going to become uh, uh, farmers and ranchers and these people had lived 40 years in the winters they didn't know anything about agriculture <laughs> they didn't know anything about producing a crop they didn't know anything about ranching and growing uh, 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 food for your, for your livestock and reproducing life. They didn't know anything about any of those things. Their parents had been slaves building buildings and they themselves had spent their whole lives wandering around in the wilderness, moving from place to place. They didn't know how to cultivate dry land to produce crops. And so Yahweh is a God of war. Yahweh defeats our enemies but the people in this land say that there are other gods that are responsible for agriculture, fertility of our flocks. Yahweh is a God of war, but they came to see Baal as the God of agriculture. They came to believe that they needed Yahweh in case they had to go to war. But while we're growing crops, we need Baal. We need to worship him. And they also believed in territorial gods. They believed that the land that they were settling belonged to Baal. Yahweh had given it to them, but ultimately Baal would determine 
the productivity, the fertility of their land. And so they never stopped worshiping God, but they combined the worship of Baal and the other local gods with, uh, with Yahweh. Uh, they committed spiritual adultery as they came to believe that Baal would ensure that their crops flourished and that their herds reproduced. And that's why it's called harlotry here and not just adultery. So what's the difference between harlotry and adultery? Get paid. That's right. That's, and so they thought that the produce of the land and of their crops would be their wage. That's what they're going to receive from serving Baal. Yep. Have you had a question? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, so she went after another lover for wages. And Hosea uh, kind of uh, makes the same thing, and we talked about Hosea a while ago as we studied through there, but in Hosea chapter 2, verse, verse 5, we see the, the same thing, the, image, the emphasis on wages. Hosea 2, 5 says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. And so she is chasing after wages. But then uh, in, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord says, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me, so I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall eat them. So uh, uh, it was the Lord who had given them these things. God was the source of the grain, the oil, the silver, the gold that they used in their worship. God was the source of all the things that they used in their worship of Baal. And they gave Baal credit for the fruitfulness of their land and their herds and their wombs. But God said, I'm the source of those things and I will take them away. And so uh, uh, we see the same thing in Isaiah. Uh, there, Isaiah and Hosea um, teaching the same message here. And so spiritual adultery, harlotry, mixing the worship of God with the worship of other things and expecting, anticipating that these other things will provide what you need, what you desire, what you want. And so uh, spiritual adultery, the faithful city, has become a harlot. But, uh, you know, spiritual adultery is also a, a uh, New Testament concept. Flip over, if you would, to the book of James in the New Testament. James chapter 4. J 
James chapter 4, verse 4. James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And so spiritual adultery, also a New Testament concept. People who choose to be friends with the world are an adulterous people, enemies of God. And the world here is the system of evil that's under the control of Satan. The world system with its perverted values, uh, worthless pursuits, unnatural affections. The world is designed to lure us away from a pure and committed relationship with God. Spiritual adultery is forsaking of God's love and running after the world's values and desires. Seeking the things of the world to provide the things that we need uh, to, uh, to be the source of our wages. And the spiritual adulterer in the New Testament is one who professes faith in Jesus, yet finds his real love and real pleasure and real affection sets his real affection on the things that satan and this world system offer and for believers the love of god and the love of the world are opposites they cannot exist together john tells us in first john chapter 2 verse 15 first uh, john 2 15 do not love the world or the things in this world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so believers committing spiritual adultery claim to love the Lord, but in reality they have sold out to the pleasures of this world, its influence, its comforts its financial security, its so-called freedoms and liberties. And so the faithful city has become a harlot. Not abandoning the worship of God, but combining the worship of God with the worship and the seeking of satisfaction from other lesser things. And the Bible tells us, what's the Bible tell us about serving two masters? Uh, you can't do it. You cannot serve two masters and so there's constant warnings against combining the worship of the lord with the worship of the things of this world and the pursuit of the things of this world constant warnings either you're going to love the one and hate the other you'll be devoted to one and despise the other the bible warns us just don't love the world or anything in the world for if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not they are mutually exclusive. And so we're constantly warned against the uh, sin of spiritual adultery, spiritual harlotry. Uh, you know, the call to discipleship is a call to take up your cross and follow Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Spiritual adultery is an attitude of the heart. And uh, 
Uh, last time that we were in Isaiah, we talked about repentance. Isaiah's call to repentance. And remember, we talked about repentance being the putting off and the putting on. You know, so there's two parts of repentance. Putting off that which is sinful, that which is rebellion against God, that which is displeasing to his sight. Put those things off, but that's not enough. That in itself is not repentance. Then we need to put on the things that are godly, the things that are pleasing to God, the things that God requires of us. And so repentance is putting off and putting on. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so to cast away, uh, to put off spiritual adultery is to cast away worldliness, a love for the things of this world, but there's also a turning to new affections. To avoid spiritual adultery, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things of heaven and not the things of earth. And so, uh, question, as we look at this condemnation, the faithful city has become a harlot. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, where do we turn for the things that we need? You know, many people today say, yeah, you know, I trust Jesus to take me to heaven, uh, but they don't trust him uh, so much to bring, bring them through this world. Uh, they do not find their satisfaction in Jesus. They don't trust that he will provide all that they need. So what do they do? They turn to the world. They don't abandon Jesus. They believe that he's going to take them to heaven. But they do try to mix the worship of Jesus with the worship of the things of the world. The pursuit of Jesus with the pursuit of the things of this world. And seeking to find satisfaction and, and comfort and pleasure in the things that the world offers. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They compartmentalize their life. Jesus meets my spiritual needs, but I turn to the world to meet my physical or emotional needs. Too many are captivated by the world, its influence, its comforts, its financial security, relationships, community, the seeking of wages, of happiness, comfort, security, freedom from pain, seeking after the world to provide for them what only only God can provide things that can only come from God. Too many seek other gods to provide what only King Jesus can provide. They're spiritual adulterers, harlots, seeking wages from other lovers. And the wages that the world offers don't provide satisfaction. They don't provide what they promise. <laughs> they don't, uh, they don't, they, and Ultimately, God, as he said to the nation of Israel and Hosea, I'll take all those things away. All those things that you thought were your wages, I can come and take those things away. Uh, the wages cannot satisfy. Those wages will perish with the world. And so we are foolish to run after those things. And so the call to repentance Stop chasing after the things of this world and return to being a faithful city, a faithful people. Find hope in Jesus, hope for all things. If we can trust Jesus to take us to heaven, we can trust him to uh, be with us in Monroe County 
and in uh, things in this place in the world. Uh, Romans eight thirty two tells us, "He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall shall he not with him also freely give all things?" You can fully and completely trust the one who has given you his son. So the call is to love him with all of your heart, with undivided devotion, undivided affection, seeking him and seeking him alone, and seeking to be faithful to him, to do what he has called us to do. He showed his love for us, that while we were sinners, he sent his son to die for us, to take the penalty that we deserve, and God raised him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted. And he calls us to turn from our sin, to trust in him. And we're born again by the Holy Spirit. And he calls us to follow him with an undivided heart. Total devotion. Seeking to serve him and him alone. Because nobody can serve two masters. Loving the world and loving God are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. And Jesus offers full and complete satisfaction. We can trust him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And so the nation is re rebuked for their misplaced affections. Seeking after the things of the world, the gods of the world that cannot satisfy. And the affections of the heart. The desires of the heart lead to actions. And so because of their spiritual adultery, their spiritual harlotry, there was a result in actions. A city that was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows their rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. So the affections of their heart led to sinful actions. Uh, they were seeking wages, and so instead of justice, they became oppressors. And so next week, we will look at uh, biblical justice, and we'll see how the affections of their heart led to injustice and oppression and so we'll spend next week looking at those next few verses how the nation was now filled with injustice and oppression and we'll talk a lot about biblical justice all right questions or comments about uh, the faithful city becoming a heart questions about jerusalem judah um, the time of isaiah and the state of his nation and his city All right, if not, we'll, we'll pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for how your word convicts us. And Lord, we can all confess that we have chased after things, uh, set our hearts on things, pursued things that cannot satisfy. We have looked for the things of this world to provide for us only what you can provide. And Lord, we... Uh, find that it can't satisfy and that when we choose to sin we 
go farther than we wanted to go, we stay longer than we wanted to stay, we pay more than we wanted to pay, and we find out that those things do not bring satisfaction. And so, Lord, may your word confront us and help us to put off the affection for the things of this world, to put off uh, running after false gods in order to find satisfaction. May we put that off and may we put on faithfulness. Lord, may we follow you with undivided hearts, total devotion. May you be the source of our affection. And Lord, may those right affections, when we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, may that result in right actions. And Lord, we thank you that you have sent your son into the world because we fell short of that standard. We did not love you with our whole hearts, with all of our strength, but you sent your son into the world who fulfilled the law in a sinless life and then fulfilled the demands of the law against us lawbreakers in his atoning death. And we thank you that you have given us your son and that you've raised him from the dead, conquering death for all who believe. And we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit that calls us to turn from sin and to trust in him alone and enables us to follow. And God, we pray that you would grant us undivided hearts and that we would find help and hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Help us to pursue him, to be faithful to him, to love him with all that we are. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all.